morning, church family. If you have your Bible, go ahead and open those. Today we'll be in 2 Timothy chapter 1. Uh, thank you for being here today. I'm honored to be the pastor and to preach at this church. Today we read from 2 Timothy chapter 1. We read from verses 1 through 11. And this is the third and final week of our series of our identity in Christ. Now I would imagine some of you are asking, you know, why are we taking a break from the Gospel of John to unpack our identity in Christ? Now, the reason we're taking a three-week break is because of our mission that we as a church, our mission statement is to guide all people to become biblical followers of Christ through intentional relationship. The reason we're starting small groups, the reason we unpack uh, books of the Bible verse by verse, and the reason we're unpacking our identity in Christ is because of our mission. One of In churches, I talk about this the last couple of weeks, in churches we talk about how the gospel saves me, but not how the gospel changes me. That the gospel gives me abundant life now. And one of the most profound changes that happens because of the gospel here and now is our identity change in Christ Jesus, which is why we are unpacking who I am in Christ. And today we're in 2 Timothy chapter 1, reading from verses 1 through 11. And I came in with kind of one idea of our identity in Christ And as preachers, we usually walk out of the text with more than we walked into it with. And so today I walked in with one identity change, but then we're actually unpacking two more in addition. So notice 2 Timothy chapter 1, who am I in Christ? How does the gospel change me now? It says this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of life in Christ Jesus, To Timothy, my beloved son, grace and mercy and peace from God, the Father in Christ Jesus, our Lord. I thank my God, whom I serve with a clear conscience the way my forefathers did, as I constantly remember you in my prayers night and day, longing to see you, even as I recall your tears, so that I may be filled with joy. For I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I am sure that it is in you as well. For this reason I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God, which is in you through the laying of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and of love and of discipline or sound mind. Therefore... Do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. And this is the gospel. Who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity, but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, who is Christ named Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortalities to life through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. Amen. The word of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord are pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. Your word is more desirable than gold, yes, than fine gold, sweeter also than honey in the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Amen. Today we are in 
part three. Today we're picking up where we left off last week. We really have for three weeks been answering the question, how does the resurrection really change my life? This is the third and final week in our series. And for three weeks, kind of the image I wanted to leave you with is that I'm your spiritual, opt- spiritual optometrist, your spiritual eye doctor. I want to, wanted to prescribe the exact thing that you needed to see the world correctly. For three weeks, uh, the glasses that I prescribed to each of us, are the lens is your identity in Christ. Because only when you can truly answer the question, who am I in Christ? Only when you have somewhat of an understanding of that question, who am I in Christ, can you really, truly see the world correctly. So, who am I in Christ? Two weeks ago, we unpacked 2 Corinthians chapter 5, that now because of the gospel, because of what Jesus Christ has done on the cross, and because of the gift of eternal life, who am I now? That I am a new creation. Because of Christ, I'm a new creation, so I should see myself, others, and my mission in this world as new. Last week, we unpacked 2 Corinthians chapter 1, as well as a couple different verses. Who am I in Christ, based on last week, that I am permanently secured for salvation. Who am I in Christ? In Christ, I am permanently secured for salvation to God through the seal and guarantee of the Spirit. What does that mean? That there is nothing I can do to ever lose my salvation. If I do nothing to earn it, then what can I do to lose it? That at the moment I believe in Jesus Christ, at that moment my identity, my eternal destiny has been permanently secured. I am sealed by the Spirit to God. And today we unpack another one. Because in churches we hear about how the gospel saves me, but not how the gospel changes me. How else does the gospel change me? If you have your notes, I would encourage you to grab them. If you, you can get up if you want to and sneak out. I won't be too distracted, or you can grab it on your way out. But on the back of your note sheet, if you have that, there are actually 50 different changes that happen on this side of heaven at the moment you believe in Jesus Christ. 50 things. Now, that is a list far too long for my seminary professors to allow me to share with you all. So instead, I just put it on the back of the note sheet for you guys to unpack this week, which I would encourage you to do. Today, we unpack the profound change that we have due to the power of God. Today, we unpack the power of God that he has given to us. Now... Allow me to illustrate the power of God and how it changes my life. Now, you're, you're, I'm sure most certainly were wondering what this was up here for. I had one last week as well. And if you're wondering where the uh, additional lamp in the foyer went, here it is. Okay. Sorry to you if you're wondering if it was stolen or not. The, the preacher stole it, although, never mind. Uh, it's not sin. Well, well, maybe not. Okay. So, this is a lamp. Okay? Now, what can you tell about this lamp right here and now? Uh, Number one, that there was a designer, that somebody thought it through, that somebody designed the way it would look, that somebody had enough care for it, that they designed it for a purpose, not to just sit up here and collect dust. But that number one, someone designed it, and number two, that it is designed for a specific purpose. 
that if you have a lamp sitting in a storage unit, then it's what? That it's not serving its designed purpose. That it may look good on the outside, but if it just sits in a storage unit without sharing light, then it's just collecting dust. But what is required for this lamp to serve its purpose? It must be connected to power. It's the same with us. That without Christ, we may look good on the outside, that God has designed us for a specific purpose, but if we are not connected to the power of God, that we cannot truly serve our purpose in this world. Part of our purpose in this darkened age is to shine light. But in order to really shine light, to shine the gospel to the ends of the earth, we must be and we must live according to the power that is given to us. That without us... Connecting to the power of Christ without us discovering who we truly are, then we will be lifeless, looking good on the outside, but not serving the purpose that God has given us. Today I want to talk to you about the power of God that He has given to each of us who are believers in His name. But what's amazing about this power is that it not only changes my life, but it sends uh, ripples, so to speak, to, for generations to come. That it allows me to serve His purpose in this darkened age. That only when I'm truly connected to the power of God can I really live as I should. The power of God is what we see in 2 Timothy chapter 1. So if you have your Bible, turn to 2 Timothy chapter 1. If you're unfamiliar with where that is, that's towards the end of the Bible itself. Second Timothy is a really small book of the Bible. It's only 83 verses in totality. But in order to really appreciate a, a book of the Bible or any passage of Scripture, you'll have to forgive me for unplugging this because it is only slightly blinding me. Okay, so anyways, sorry. But we will very quickly unpack the context of our passage. It is To kind of give you an idea of the importance of a context, I said this a couple of weeks ago, it is difficult to understand the game of football without understanding the rules or the playing field which it is played on. The context is kind of similar to a football field. It's, it's, the, it's the rules, it's the playing field at which the passage lies. There are seven types of writing in the Bible. There are narrative, which is story, similar to the book of Genesis, parts of Exodus. There is narrative, there is poetry, there is wisdom, there is prophetic literature, writings, there is apocalyptic writings, there is legal, and then there are letters written. The book of 2 Timothy is a letter. 2 Timothy was written, it was a letter written by Paul to a young man named Timothy, who was a young pastor, who was living in an age of immorality, in an age that lacked truth. Second Timothy concerns the personal walk of a Christian, a true servant of Christ, in a day of apostasy and immorality. You think about Second Timothy is a perfect letter for our day and age. That because of our culture, as our culture slowly walks away from the truth of the scripture and the truth that we find in the Bible towards an era of subjectivism, that we find in Second Timothy how we should live in this age, in an age that is moving away from the truth of the scripture towards postmodernism. So Paul instructs Timothy on how to live in such a world 
of immorality and a lack of truth. And if you would read the book in its totality, then you would see that Second Timothy is really Paul's final words. It's almost as if Paul knows he's about to die, and he pins to Timothy a last bit of instruction before he departs for heaven. Now, as I've already mentioned, as we walk into 2 Timothy, as this is kind of the context of our passage, it is a letter written by Paul to a young pastor. You know, when I was unpacking this text, what I kind of came in with one central idea, one principle of how the gospel changes my life. And then famously, as preachers, we, I walked out with two more. So I want, to, I want you to see three different principles of change. There are three changes that happen because of the gospel at the moment I believe in Jesus Christ. Notice the first principle is found in verse 5, but we will begin with the context of verse 5 in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ, Jesus, that word Christ there is the Greek word Christos, meaning it's a designation, meaning that Jesus is the anointed one, the Messiah. Paul, an apostle of the Messiah Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of life in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved son, grace and mercy and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God, whom I serve with a clear conscience the way my forefathers did, as I constantly remember you in my prayers night and day, longing to see you, even as I recall your tears so that I may be filled with joy. What kind of relationship does Paul have with Timothy? If he remembers tears, then what kind of relationship does he have? One that is intimate, one that know each other from the inside out. Verse 5, For I am mindful of the sincere faith within you. But notice this next phrase, Which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am sure that is in you as well. For this reason I am reminded I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of hands. What is really going on here? We have the, the beginning of the book called the prologue. We, we see Paul being introduced in the letter of Second Timothy. But what else is going on here? You know, I was unpacking this text this week. I, I didn't notice this at first, but there's a generational thing going on. Notice verse 2. What does it say? To Timothy, my beloved son. That's a generation. But then notice in verse 5, For I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice. That we have multiple generations. Someone, some of them are physical generations, but some of them are spiritual. Paul to Timothy. That Paul is a mentor, a discipler of Timothy. We know that Paul was a lifelong bachelor, so he could not have been the biological father of Timothy. So Timothy is his spiritual son. But I want you to notice also that the faith that his grandmother and mother had, Lois and Eunice, has been passed down to Timothy. So we see the spiritual fatherhood of Timothy by Paul to him. And then we see his grandmother and mother passing on their faith. In other words, what? That your faith in Jesus Christ influences other people. Just as Lois and Eunice influenced Timothy, and just as Paul influenced Timothy, that your faith, how you live your life, the people that are around you, your faith influences generations. Now notice what I did not say. I did not say that your faith should influence generations. 
I said that your faith does influence generations. It 100% influences other people that the way we live influences our children and other people that live around us and amongst us. How I live for Christ either shapes people to live further for Christ or to not live further from Christ. Let me just ask this all the question. This is a question I asked myself this week. What do people see when they interact with me? Do they see somebody that truly walks by the Spirit, that loves the Word of God, that applies the Scripture, that teaches them how to pray, how to confess one's sin, how to overcome difficulties in this world? To those of you who do not have physical children, or to those of you that your children are long gone, there are people in your life, whether that's a caretaker, whether that's some, a kid in Awana, that the people around you, that your faith 100% certainly influences generations to come. If I could illustrate it this way, your life is a single pebble in the midst of a sea of people. That you live your life and it drops and then ripples go out from your life to influence all those around you. That your faith has the ability to influence generations to come. Who am I in Christ? I have faith that influences generations. Sometimes in life we get distracted by so many things or we don't feel like we're really making an influence in the world or we're not... But that's not true at all, that our single life, the ripples that come from our life, influence all those generations that are around us, just like Lois, just like Eunice, and just like Paul. But how can we best influence generations? How can we truly use our life to send out ripples through the sea of people that we interact with? I'm just going to put a thought in your mind to let... This is the thought. Let them see the real you. Let them see the real you. If that you really want to have influence over generations of people, let them see the real you. The statue of David has far less influence than the life of David. Let me say that again. The statue of David has far less influence than the life of David. That if we appear to be perfect all the time, that people really have a hard time relating to that. But what I would encourage you to do is not uh, dump on everybody, all of your sin at all the time, don't do that. But just let people that are close to you see the real you. Let your children really see your struggles and how you live your life. Let them see how you confess your sin, how you overcome things. Let them see how, they inca- how you deal with trials, because guess what's going to come? That those kids in Awana, those kids that are in Sunday school, the the friends that you have in this life, they're going to encounter one day a difficult trial, and they're going to look at your life, and they're going to say, you know, if if he or she can endure that, then I can endure it as well. That we influence generations not by being the statue of David, by appearing perfect, but by being the person of David, by seeing, by showing all of our warts. Uh, Think about... Think about the most relatable characters in the Bible. Think about your favorite character in the Bible besides Jesus, okay? We, that's the Sunday school. Who's your favorite character in the Bible? Jesus, okay? We won't go there. But who is your favorite character in the Bible besides Jesus? I imagine every single one of them have a wart. They all have a trial. They all struggle with sin. And one of the reasons that makes them so relatable and so influential is because we see that. 
Let people see your light. Now, don't go around dumping on everybody, every sin you've ever created. Don't do that. But the people that are really close to you, the people that, you are, that God has entrusted you to influence, influence them with your life. Show them how to pray. Show them how to love people. Show them how to treat your spouse. Show them how to love the, a homeless person, how to talk to people. Show them how to make decisions based on the Bible. Show them how to be led by the Spirit. Show them how to confess your sins. Show them who you really are and the struggles and warts that come with the Christian life. Because that is how we will influence generations to come. My faith, your faith, influences others. You know, I was really kind of unpacking this text this week in 2 Timothy chapter 1, and I was kind of isolating on verse 7, and then as I was unpacking verses 1 through 5, I just saw this theme, that God has given me the power and the faith to influence people just by the way I live and teach and talk about the Scripture. You know, and you know, as a parent, you know, <laughs> your kids see all of your inadequacies, Amen. You know, some of the things that you wish you didn't say, they start saying, and then you wait, whoa, 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 whoa. And as I saw this, this theme of generational influence, I just began to ask myself the question, what are my kids seeing in my life? What are the people in my church seeing in my life? And I hope we ask ourselves that question as well. So we have faith that influences generations, but then notice, ah, Great verse, and you probably all have memorized this one, verse 7. For God has not. That word not there in the original language is in the position of emphasis. So it's kind of highlighted, all caps in the original language. Verse 7, for God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and of love and of discipline. Who am I in Christ? I have faith that influences generations. And number two, I have been given a spirit of power, not fear. And God has given us boldness, not one of fear. Think about all the times in the scripture that it commands us to not be afraid. Joshua chapter 1, have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous, do not tremble or be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Think about Philippians chapter 4 verse 6, be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Matthew chapter 6 verse 34, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow worry about self. Today has enough trouble of its own. What's the theme in all of it? It's fear. That God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of discipline over and over and over again. The Bible commands us not to be afraid. But what is the thing that we struggle most with? Let's just be honest. Fear, anxiety, stress, and worry. Fear is not from God. There's only one type of fear that is from God, that we should fear God. But fearing any created thing is not of God. Where do I get that from? That fearing any created thing is not of God. Where do I get it from? Think about the very beginning of time. What happens in the Garden of Eden? When is the first time that they experience fear? 
They do not experience fear before the fall, that when they're walking in perfect union with God, when is the first time that they experience fear? Is after they eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? What do they do? They run in shame and hide. You remember that? God did not create us, did not give us a spirit of fear, but of love and power and of discipline. We are not to fear any created thing. That fear, the only fear from God is to fear God, because that is the beginning of wisdom. But any anxiety, any worry, any fear of any created thing is not of the Lord. We often get that reversed, though. Oftentimes we fear what is created, and we do not fear the Creator. That we fear created things, but we do not fear the creator of things. If we are truly honest, we all, probably on a daily basis, struggle with fear. If you're driving on the parkway, by the way, Martin Road, they ticket you. If you drive underneath Martin Road, you probably experience fear. All right? We experience every fear all the time itself. Do I have enough money for retirement? What will they think of me? Are my kids safe? Is my job secure? We fear what we should not and do not fear what we should. The only thing that should cause us fear is God himself. And I think if we truly placed fear to God, then then the fear in our life would kind of take care of itself. Because if we truly feared the Lord, if we truly saw Him as He is, that He is judge, that He is just, that He is sovereign, then if we truly understood that He is God of everything, then how would that change our hearts and our minds? That we would not fear the created things because we know that God is in control. Oftentimes we fear because we do not remember that God is truly in control. That God has not given us a spirit of timidity or of fear, but of what? Of spirit of power and of love and of discipline. The Greek word here for power is the Greek word dunamis, which is where we get the word dynamite. Think about dynamite, kind of the image is power. That God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power, the ability to be bold, to overcome fear. But instead of picking up the spirit of power, we often are tempted to pick up the spirit of timidity. And this is so true when we watch things like Fox News and CNN and the news and we become so fearful of asking ourselves the question, will they take my guns or will they you know, force us to shut down as a church or will someone sue me? But when we fear any created thing, what are we not doing? We're not fearing God. We're not remembering that he is truly in control. And we're not remembering how God has created us after the gospel. Think about the very thing. In the Garden of Eden, the very thing that rushed in after sin was fear. And the very thing that God is redeeming on the opposite side of things is our fear of created things. God has not given us a spirit of fear and timidity, but of power and of love and of discipline and sound mind. But the question is also, is what is the relationship? You know, what is the relationship between power and love and discipline? Because initially speaking, those three seem to be kind of uh, substantival adjectives, meaning they could kind of stand alone. 
But I think that there's a relationship between those three words of love, discipline, and of power. The question is what? I believe love and discipline is the container of our power. It is the Tupperware dish, so to speak. Let me illustrate. Think about uh, a Tupperware container. Let's say you just uh, made a batch of chili, okay? So anybody else like chili in this room? Okay, it's good. You live in, we live in Alabama. You should like chili. It's normal, okay? We, okay, so we love, I mean, I love chili. So, but, but what's required if you want to store that thing? You've got to leave it in a Tupperware dish, all right, and put it in the refrigerator for tomorrow, right? So let's just say you get the brilliant idea. Don't do this at home. Please don't do this next idea. Um, let's say you just have a brilliant idea that you want to save that chili for the next day, but instead of putting it in a Tupperware dish, you just decide to take the big pot of chili and just dump it out in your fridge. Okay, so you're just sitting there scraping it out of the pot into your fridge. Now what's going to happen? Your wife is going to yell at you, probably, number one. But number two, it's going to be a gigantic catastrophe. It's going to be a gigantic mess. I think that's kind of similar with our power. The container of our power is love and of discipline, that God has given to us a spirit of power. But that must be contained within an attitude of love. And the word discipline here can also mean self-control. If you think about that, it makes sense of that word power. That we should be, that our power in God should be contained in an attitude of love and in self-control. Because if you do not have those things, guess what's going to happen? You're going to make a big mess, right? With your life. Oh, God gave me power. I'm just going to... We contain the power of God in an attitude of love and also in an attitude of self-control. We must use the power that God has given us to set aside our fear and to love others and to be self-controlled. Fearing any created thing is not of God. Who am I, Christ? I have a faith that sends out ripples that can influence generations to come. Who else am I in Christ? I have been given a spirit of power, not of fear. But God has not just given us a spirit of power just to make ourselves feel a little bit better about our lives, but we're supposed to use that power for one particular purpose especially. Notice verse 8. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. If you ever pen, circle that word, therefore. What I say, I believe that's the Greek word un there. I do not have a Greek manuscript up here with me, but I believe that word is the Greek word un. And, and what is it therefore, therefore? And therefore is drawing a conclusion. Therefore, because of verses 1 through 7, therefore I am to not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, that the power that God has given us should be contained within the attitude of self-control and love, but that power should be used to what? To let us share the gospel, to not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. Do not be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What does it say in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 through 17? 
For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous man shall live by faith. The power that God has given us at the moment of salvation is not just given to us to make ourselves feel a little bit better about our lives, but the power that God has given to us should cause us to be lights to the darkness, just like this lamp. That without tapping into the power of God, we just kind of sit here and collect dust. But the power of God is given to us so that we would shine the truth of the gospel and the good news to the darkest parts of the world. So then, friends, in verse 8, let us not be ashamed. Let us not hide our faith under a bushel. But let us be bold. Perhaps now more than ever, in verse 8, we need to hear that truth that we should not be ashamed. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. What's happening in our world as we speak? That as the culture of America moves more and more towards subjectivism and away from the truth of the scripture, more and more we will need to be bolder and bolder and bolder to stand up to the tidal waves that are coming our way. But in the midst of all of the trouble and all of the trials that are coming to Bible-believing Christians... Let us not be fearful, because that's not of God. Let us not be ashamed. Why? Because the power of God that he has given to us should cause us to be bold to this dark world. Let us not be afraid of the shift that our culture is taking. Let us not fear men, but let us rather in turn fear God. And let that control our actions and behavior. But notice what he says also in verse 8 as well. It says, therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me as prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. (laughs) What's going to happen if we truly live bold and not ashamed of the gospel? What does it say? It says, join with me in suffering. If you came to church today to feel warm and fuzzy uh, and to feel like that the gospel is just something given to us free that we can just... But the gospel is something we should be willing to suffer for. It is something we will suffer for if we are truly living lives according to what the Bible tells us. Principle number three I have is this, that I am commissioned... I am commissioned to share and to suffer for the gospel. That because of the power that has been given to me, contained in an attitude of love and self-control, because of that, therefore, I should not be ashamed, but I should be willing to suffer for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And suffering, more and more suffering for those who are true Christians that truly live by the scripture, more suffering is coming. It is coming. But then notice verses 9 and 10. Notice the gospel that called us and saved us. Verse 9. Who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works. Amen. Who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted to us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. 
but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, who is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, by the appearing of our Savior, who is Christ, who is the Messiah, his name is Jesus, who abolished death. So the very thing that was ushered in in the Garden of Eden is the very thing that Jesus Christ has redeemed. The very thing that was ushered in fear is the very thing that Christ has come to do away with, that we have a spirit of power. Who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Can I just read that those two verses one more time? Who has saved us and called us with a holy calling. Not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Who am I now in Christ? How has the gospel shaped not only my eternal life, but also my earthly life? And I'm one, God has given me a faith that influences generations, that God has given me a spirit of power, not of fear, And that number three, that I am commissioned to share and to suffer for the gospel. So then the million dollar question is, okay, how do I kind of take this this passage that was written kind of 2,000 years ago and kind of apply it to my life? That's kind of the question I'm seeking to answer over the next five or ten minutes or so. Uh, But I'm really going to ask you a more personal question in that regard. The question is, is how are you responding to God today? Not how are you responding to Byron today, but how are you responding to God today? If you, you probably know this, but there's been a group of people that have been working on the vision and mission of Calvary Bible Church over the last year or so. And, and it was, we, we've been putting together a mission statement, which was slowly rolling out. But we also put together something called mission measures. Now, you're going to ask me, what is that? Mission measures is how do we measure if we are accomplishing our mission as a church? Okay? Mission measures. So one of them that we have is a question, how am I responding to God today? One of the things I hope that happens on a Sunday, every week that we walk out, we really ask that question, how I, not, not only this, not, what did I learn? But how am I responding and applying it to my life? But prove yourselves to be doers of the word and not just hearers who delude themselves. James chapter 1. How am I responding to God? That's the question I asked myself this week as I was unpacking this text. And I just kind of felt like the Lord was saying, okay, Byron, instead of trying to remember all three and apply all three and just get lost in a sea of uh, confusion, just pick one. Byron, Byron Brad, just pick a principle that you want to apply this week. And that's what I encourage you to do as well. Just pick a principle. That if you are struggling with fear and anxiety in your life, pick number two. If you have young children at home, pick number one. If you're struggling to share the gospel and to really, truly suffer for it in willingness, pick number three. And then go to the Lord and just simply ask, okay, Lord, that I'm commissioned to share and to suffer for the gospel. How does that kind of work in my life? 
And I picked number one because I have very young children at home. I have a four-year-old and a two-year-old and one about to be newly minted Bradshaw girl in the world, okay? And I will lose a bunch of sleep, and in three weeks you'll see my eyes like this, okay? Uh, and lots of diapers. I'm starting all over again, and praise the Lord. I love having children. I'm not complaining up here. Okay, but, okay. but you know, I just, because I have young children at home, I basically said, you know, Lord, I have faith. That, is in, that influences my children, that will influence my children's children for generations to come. The question I had for them, for myself, is what are they seeing? And what are my children seeing as they live in my household? Do they see somebody who loves the Lord? Do they see somebody who asks for forgiveness? Do they see somebody who overcomes struggles? Do they see someone that teaches them how to pray, that examples repentance and forgiveness? Do they see somebody who teaches them how to listen to the direction of the Lord? Do they see somebody who is willing to have a devotion to them and just listen to what they say? How are you responding to the Lord today? Pick a principle to apply. That's simply my application here this morning. Is just take the principle and take it home with you tonight or tomorrow in your quiet time. Just, just go to the Lord and say, okay, Lord, I'm commissioned to share and to suffer for the gospel. What does that mean practically in my life today and for this week? That is what I'm asking each of us to do. This is in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14. It says this, for the love of Christ compels us. For the love of Christ compels us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died, and he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Let me read that again. For the love of Christ compels us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died, and he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Amen. Before I close, I share this every week. There's a problem and a solution and application. That was an outline that I was given in seminary. It comes in handy every once in a while. There's a problem, solution, and application when it comes to our spiritual life. The problem is what? That we, as human beings, that we are sinful. And what does that mean? That we are imperfect. We lie, cheat, and steal. Amen? Amen? Okay, hopefully you didn't lie, cheat, and steal this morning. We probably all, well, moving on. Okay, but <laughs> this is not confession time. Okay, I, I stole a lamp. I'm sorry. Okay, um... There's a problem in this world, that our world is darkened by sin, that you and I are sinners, that we are imperfect beings, and because we're imperfect, that we are separated from the presence of a perfect God. But then there was a solution, that Jesus Christ came and he died for all, to pay my sin, and then he gives us an application that he turns around the gospel and he gives it to us free of charge, that if we would believe in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, not only would we have these three principles, but we would also have eternal life in him. If you've never surrendered your life, if, there is, if you could draw your life on a timeline, perhaps you've gone to church a long time, but on the timeline of your life, if there's never a moment in your life that you've surrendered to your Lord and Savior, if you've never arrived at that moment, then today is your day. That the gospel has been presented to you, that if you believe in Jesus Christ, that you shall be saved. I would encourage you to believe today. Do not delay, but allow the Spirit of God to change your life. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning.
Uh, Lord, I, uh, your gospel is so much more than just something that gives me fire insurance. Something so much more than just promises me heaven. But it changes my life here and now. Lord, I pray that we would be Christians that do not fear the world, but we fear our Lord. And we would put you in the place that you're supposed to be in our lives, and we would allow that to change every nook and cranny of our being. Lord, I just pray that as we go, that we would, that we would be doers of the word and not just hearers who delude themselves. Lord, I pray that we would apply your word. Lord, thank you for this church. Uh, what a privilege it is to be here and to be the pastor of this church. Lord, thank you for the faithfulness and the love of these people, their love for your word and their love for our Savior. Lord, I pray that our love for one another would go into the community, that we would go into the community to, with the, bringing the light of the gospel to the ends of the earth. Lord, I thank you for those that are online tuning in. I thank you for each of them. Lord, I pray special protection for them. Lord, thank you for our church and just the love that we have for you. And I pray that our love for one another for you would go to go out to our communities. And I thank you for this morning. And I pray all these things in your son's name. Amen.